This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Nth Dimension. This is a podcast or a conversation. And by now, we all know what this is really about. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. A little bit of meaningful stuff and a little bit not. And we have uh, a deja vu moment happening here. I'm giggling as I say this because I have Brendan back with me in the studio. Uh, Brendan DeKennessy, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you introduce yourself this time. Um, who are you? What are you doing here? And why is this a deja vu moment? Yeah, so uh, I am um, Brendan DeKennessy, as you said. I'm a professor at University of Toronto. Um, I just started at University of Toronto a year ago. Uh, and uh, before that, I was at grad school at MIT uh, in Boston. Actually, I'm born and raised in the US. Uh, so this is my first year living in Canada. Uh, and um, I'm a professor of philosophy in particular. And so you invited me here to <laughs> talk about human nature and are humans good or evil by nature? And I came in and we had this uh, wonderful, fabulous conversation. Excellent recording. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we we actually we figured it all out. Exactly, we, we had answered life all the questions, uh, and then um, it turned out that the whole time the microphones had been muted. <laughs> so uh, here, we are again, <laughs> here we are again, having forgotten the answers to all the questions, and we have to try and figure them figure them out again from scratch. But isn't so. that life? Like, yeah, we exactly. wake up, it's all lost, and then we're running again like hamsters on a wheel. Yeah, or or it's <laughs> like a the there are these um I'm gonna screw this up because this is just like a pop culture reference, but this idea of like a a Buddhist sand sculpture, like you do calligraphy in the sand, and then they wipe and, it all down, and then you wipe it away, yeah. and you know the the transience of all <laughs> things of value on earth. We had a great conversation, even though exactly. no one else will ever get to hear it. Exactly, and probably not even us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna lie though. I went home, and then when I realized that the recording all went to, uh, I can't use bad words on the podcast. All went to nothingness. Nothingness. Thank it you. Dissolved into the <laughs> Funny void. How my <laughs> vocabulary is so limited that I cannot think beyond the sh word. Um, <laughs> I was actually thinking about okay, so the lesson to be learned here, Shreya, is don't get attached to good things um, mm. and move past it. So mm -hmm. I'm so happy that you decided to come back. Yeah. Um, I remember, and I'm going to try my best not to be like, oh, you know, the last time we spoke, because this is a fresh conversation. Uh, but one of the things I want to ask you, uh, and probably we won't digress or will digress, but like, how do you approach life? Like, are you just, because you're a philosopher, I think it's so interesting. Do, like, would it be too much to say that you are so lucky that you get, you're paid to ponder on life? Can I say that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I am uh, overwhelmed by the insane luckiness of getting to do what I do for a job. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, um, it, it kind of feels like I've pulled a, a fast one on society. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I took philosophy classes in college for fun. Yeah. Uh, and for most of college, it didn't occur to me that like this could be a career. Uh, and then all of a sudden here I am 10 years later, 
getting paid to do it. So exactly. yeah, it's, you, it's cool. <laughs> I mean, it is sometimes work, you know, it's not of like, <laughs> uh, we don't, we don't just like scratch our chins and say profound sounding stuff. That's not and what hmm. philosophers do. Actually, I think philosophy in the end is a lot more like, um, science than, uh, a lot of people tend to think it is, uh, it, both philosophers and scientists are in the end have questions that they want to answer and are trying to uh, make progress on those questions in the most rigorous uh, systematic ways that they can. It's just that uh, philosophers do that by um, carefully making distinctions and arguments and concepts rather than by, uh, you know, running studies on proteins or monkeys or uh, protons, whatever it may be. But in the end, I think the project is very similar. So I don't want to say that philosophy is something frivolous, but on the other hand, I do feel uh, um, overwhelmed with uh, luckiness at the fact that I get to do it and not do anything else. Uh, um, I get to do it as my work, not just as my play. Yeah, excellent. I think it's anything but frivolous. I mean, you know, we're like traversing through life um, with so many existential questions and just, you know, just who it is to be us. And I think nothing but philosophy can sort of answer that. I mean, science can answer it on a very like material level mm -hmm. and biology and the chemistry and, but, but we're so much more than just the flesh and mass of us. And I don't think any other science can, can answer those questions, but philosophy. Um, yeah. And actually that remind uh, makes me think of uh, you um, asking this question about good and evil. It's one of the questions that I uh, teach about in, I have a kind of intro level lecture course called human nature. And the first thing I say in the class is, why should we have a philosophy class about this? Like, why isn't this a biology class or a psychology class? Like, isn't that what we should, you know, look at human nature from the perspective of is like study humans, uh, biologically or psychologically or anthropo anthropology class. And the, I think the answer is that there are questions that we have about ourselves that aren't easily or obviously just answered for us by science. You know, all the, biological and psychological and sociological data could come in and we'd still be left wondering, are we good or evil? We'd be left wondering, do we have souls? We'd be left wondering, do we have free will? Um, you know, what's consciousness? How does that work? Uh, and so what I say is kind of philosophy is in some ways what you do when uh, science gives out. Like uh, you've done all the work you can scientifically and you're still left with these questions that won't go away. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to try and work them through. And so, and one of the ones that we talk about maybe uh, eventually getting us to the topic of yes. the title of the podcast, <laughs> one of the ones that we talk about is like how to think about, uh, you know, the goodness or evilness of our nature. And that's a question that isn't just going to be answered by um, running thought. psychology studies, for instance. Brendan, thank you so much for getting me back on track so smoothly also, because we just went on a whole tangent. But the whole reason that we're here again today is to talk about, that was so smooth. Up oh, top here, thank up you. top. <laughs> that was so smooth. But the reason that we're here today is to talk about, um, well, the title of this podcast is, Are Human Beings Inherently Good or Bad? And, you know, it is a working title. Uh, a lot has been said. Um, in all verticals of life, you know, religion, science, uh, faith, philosophy on whether humans are inherently good or bad. But I think the question that um, the question that the goal of this conversation, I think, should be more about how do we go about dealing with the 
small moralities of life that determine uh, the path of our being and mm -hmm. how do we um, go through life knowing that human beings are both good and bad. I mean, yeah. there's no doubt about it. Um, we can talk about the deep scientific and philosophical aspects of about morality and what it means to be good and bad, but, but we are both. And how do we deal with the fact that we've come so far in life and the fact that we're still dealing with petty issues of, of um, you know, money disputes at home and on bigger levels, war and poverty. Yeah. You know, human beings have come so far, but how far have we actually come? One of the things that I said when we started this podcast was, um, uh, you know, some of the things that this podcast, I was, I was being jokey about it, but meaningful and meaninglessness. And, and sometimes I do wonder about these things and, you know, help me out here. But on a bigger level, I feel that life is very meaningless. But um, one of the aspects where life can be meaningful is just through the actions of, of humans. It's mm -hmm. where I can leave an impact on this world and where I can impact other people. Yeah. Sure, in the bigger, bigger macro scale when the earth dissolves beca because the star, because our sun's eventually gonna explode. Yeah. Sure, it means nothing. But even when I leave, nothing will mean, my job won't mean anything, my, my, bank, won't, my bank balance won't mean anything, but the way I act through this life, I think will leave an impact. Yeah. So this is where I ask you, what does it mean to be good or bad? And what is morality? And where do we get the sense of morality from? Yeah, so actually the way that you just described that uh, took me to a different set of philosophical questions and ideas than we were talking about during our ever mysterious conversation <laughs> last week. Um, because, so the sense in which um, you're saying like, there's one perspective from which nothing matters, nothing's meaningful. It's all like particles in the void, you know, it's just like different arrangements of physical stuff. How could anything be good or bad in that sense? Uh, unless you, you know, uh, and this is, I think, some of the explanation for an urge to, uh, um, you know, think that there's some kind of God or something that imbues everything with meaning, makes things good or bad. But if we're not helping ourselves to that, uh, not to say that I'm assuming that atheism is true, but just like if we don't, if we don't have necessarily a religious standard uh, by which to measure good and evil, how are we in the business of measuring good and evil in the first place? Uh, and that actually is so. There's a whole field of philosophy that's a little bit less well known called metaethics. Okay. Um, so the word metaphysics comes from Aristotle, where Aristotle wrote. Uh, the book, The Physics, which was about physics. And then he wrote a book after the book called Physics. And it was called The Metaphysics because it's the, just the word for after in Greek. Um, but it was dealing with kind of more foundational issues about what are we even talking about when we talk about physics. Similarly, so the way that that's the way that the term grew up. Similarly, metaethics is actually the study of ethics itself, like the field of ethics. What are we talking about when we talk about what's good and bad? And so if you ask like, what does it even mean to say something is good? Or how could it be true or false that something is good or bad? Um, how, can it, how can it be, uh, how could there be facts of the matter? Um, in the same way that there's a fact of the matter as to like whether there's a table here, could there be a fact of the matter as to like whether killing someone for no reason is wrong? Um, or could it just be that like, there's only the physical facts and we just paint this meaning onto it? Um, exactly. That's this the kind of question that 
uh, uh, metaethics engages with and that I think actually is a lot of uh, people's intuitive wonderings about morality is, uh, is this all made up? Is this all just like an illusion that we put on the world and really at the bottom, there's no such thing as good and evil. There's really just stuff that happens and there's no kind of objective evaluative standard to it. I think that's a very common worry uh, and like one of those philosophical questions that we engage with uh, outside of the philosophy classroom. Is that like in any way related to what of you were course, thinking Yeah, about? definitely. This, this took me back to um, Albert Camus' novel, The Stranger, mm -hmm. yeah. when the protagonist, um, I forget his name now, Merceau, mm -hmm. he, he killed that man simply for his reason was because the sun was blinding me. You know, for him, there was no question of good or bad. Yeah. It was the sun was blinding me. I had a gun in my pocket and I shot it. Yeah. You know, and and it's it's so interesting that you said what you said, because when I was uh, thinking about this podcast again and on my walk over here, I was like, people of faith and people who are religious have this probably have books that guide them through good and evil. Yeah. But for non-religious people, for atheists or agnostics, you know, what is guiding them through being through through acts of goodness and badness and is that maybe for you it's philosophy or for other people it's art and culture but essentially are we are we so like are human beings so anarchic that we have these rules and laws and the only reason that we are cooperating in society is because the law is telling me to like in india yeah, yeah. for example people people often talk about like, oh, why is it so hard for people to follow rules? And why is this, why is society so anarchic? And often the answer is because rules and regulations are very lax. And, you know, the systems don't work as well as they do in, let's say, Canada. And maybe, yeah. and I feel that often if we loosen the laws over here, I feel that people would go a bit crazy, you yeah. know? So what is holding us together? Like, is, what's driving us to to not litter if no one's watching, yeah. you know, in our bedrooms, what's, what's telling me to, to be good? Like, am I having this conversation? You know, what, what is driving the goodness in us? It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that, I think, I think you're pointing to both a way that philosophers have engaged with this meta-ethical question, like how could there be truths about what's good and evil, especially if they're not just written down by some deity? Um, and, but that you're, you're noticing that that connects up with the question of motivation. Um, if, it, when you're asking like, what, what are we talking about when we talk about good and evil, there's motivational stakes to that because, Hey, you know, I'd really like to do this selfish thing, but I guess it's wrong. Uh, but why should that deter me from doing it? Why should that give me any motivation to not do it? Uh, that's a question that people, you know, will wonder about, like if morality is a fraud uh, or if it's just what my society says it is, then all of a sudden it feels like, well, what's the point of, you know, doing what morality says? Um, which is why I think some people feel like, uh, you know, if there isn't, um, you know, a widely held religion, then there can't be a, a universal morality. And so society will degrade into chaos. To which critics uh, will say that despite religion, we still have we still have war and we still have poverty. And yep. even in highly so-called highly religious societies, they're also some of the most um, autocratic societies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so also the question of whether yeah, religion <laughs> is an 
uh, unambiguous uh, benefit or um, uh, uh, harm to uh, humanity is like another one of these big debating questions. But so on the motivation point, I think that my answer to the motivational question and to the like, what are we talking about when we talk about good and evil are intertwined. Because I think you said, as you're, you're pointing to, like, what's the point of doing it if nobody's watching? And I think that to some extent, the idea that this would be morally wrong is tied up with the idea that somebody might be watching. Because I think that there's um, an element of caring about what others think about us that isn't just um, a concern for your reputation. It isn't just egoistic or selfish. It's not just, um, I want to, uh, you know, other people to like me so that they follow me on Instagram, uh, you know, et cetera. It's, I want to be the kind of person who deserves to be liked by other people, who warrants, uh, who's likable, not just liked. Um, or, you know, another way of putting it is, uh, I, when I think that would be wrong, not only do I think other people would disapprove of it or get angry at me for it, um, but I also think like, I don't wanna be the kind of person who would be justifiably the subject of someone's anger or like give them reason to disapprove of me. Uh, and so I think we care about other people's attitudes towards us for their own sake. Um, so do you think that people are more inclined toward, most people are more inclined towards acting good and well than not? Like if nobody was watching, literally no one was watching, would I spit on the road or would yeah. I, you know, urinate on the road? Cause like, that's not good. Yeah. And I'm trashing my society, but yeah. like, do you think people would steer against doing that because they're more inclined towards being good? Yeah, so there's actually, there's this, um, your, uh, I, I'm uh, pulling out my ancient Greek references today, but um, <laughs> in uh, Plato's Republic, uh, oh, one of the characters asked Socrates this exact question. Um, the, the question is, you know, um, why be just? What's, yeah. what's the point? Um, and one of the, I'm not, I don't remember the name off the top of my head. I'm not an ancient uh, philosophy scholar, but uh we one of <laughs> one of the one of the people is one of socrates interlocutors is arguing the only reason to be just is because it's to your advantage um people are only moral because it serves them because they're afraid of getting punished for instance then why is there so oh i'm cutting so off. so yes, uh, yes. as a thought experiment yes. he asks uh what if uh and this is this is uh you know two thousand years before J.R.R. tolkien um <laughs> he says there's this myth of the ring of Gyges, yeah. which um, uh, Gyges was some like old king or someone and, and had this magical ring that could turn you invisible. And so the thought was, if, uh, if you had this invisibility ring, and so you could do anything you wanted and not be caught, would then you act morally or would you uh, just do what was question good for of the you. Hour. Exactly. exactly. That's the it's, so it's the same way of framing the question. You know, it's Gollum's yeah. ring. It's the invisibility ring. Uh, and um, my bet is, uh, you know, so this is uh, me kind of. I feel like you're going to be optimistic about this. Yeah. Well, so 
I think people would act well, but I think it's because, or, or would act to some extent well, but I think it's because they would still have the image of other people in their head. So I think that even when nobody's looking, I care about what they would think if they were looking. So are you saying in a way that the people in play, we're, we're drawing so many references right now. Yeah. Uh, but So are you saying that people chained in Plato's cave, not knowing what exists in the outside world, <laughs> would still act justly knowing that it's just them chained and they don't know that anybody exists? Because then, that, because then I want to ask you, then why is there so much unjustness in the world? I'm not even sure if that's a word. Yeah. But there's so much injustice. Yeah, that's the that's word. The word. <laughs> that's a word. I'm a journalist. No, that's no, right. no. It's all good. Uh, it's all good. You know, because we spoke about it's the It's hard to time. think and talk at the same time. And so sometimes you have to just let yourself make up words. <laughs> Thank you, Brendan. Yeah. So you guys, if sometimes you hear gaps of silence in this podcast. It's because it's exactly so hard to do that. Think yeah. and talk. Thank you so much. Um, that, that brings me to ask, why is there so much injustice, injust, injustice, injustice, thank you, in the world, you know, because we have come so far and, you know, uh, I almost don't want to jinx this conversation because it's going so well, but the last time I spoke so highly of the technological revolution, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> and then our mics were muted, <laughs> yeah. which is not going to happen now, uh, but we have evolved so much you know yeah. we've we've touched the outer limits of space we are trying to figure out whether life can be uh can be created on mars you know we're we're the internet we have done some crazy things in terms of technology since we have evolved from being cave people yeah having said that we are still struggling with the with the issues that we had when we were cave people we yeah. still have the fight and flight syndrome tribalism mm -hmm. poverty war one of the most powerful countries the most powerful country in the world uh the united states is is, is going back in times i know progress is not linear and we have come so far in terms of lgbtq issues and women's rights and 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 end of slavery but at the same time we're still we we still struggle with with crass human issues oh yeah i mean uh, just like the topical to right this moment uh the headlines you know, today and yesterday about Trump giving this racist tweet about the exactly. four freshman congresswomen saying, like, go back to where you came I, from. I feel like you're in my mind. I yeah. was going to, I was, going I was to reading about up. that on the, 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 you know, ride down here. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. going to bring that up because one of the representatives, in fact, she said that the, that what's happening at the borders is an, is, is a crisis of morality. Oh yeah. And that's the reason I wanted to bring it up. Yeah. You know, the fact that we're turning people away who are escaping war and violence and gang violence and sexual violence and we're turning those people away, kids away, then then I'm not like, what does that say about being human? Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, when I was thinking about this question again, uh, you know, after our conversation last week, and I think, uh, if I were asked to give my like slogan on whether humans are good or evil by nature, I think my cagey answer would be that whichever way we incline, most often our good and our evil come from the same sources. They come from the same motivations uh, that are either kind of pointing in a good direction or pointing in an evil direction. And so here I think the social element that I've been emphasizing that 
morality is a lot about what other people think about us and about our wanting to kind of be able to uh, kind of hold our heads high when we uh, are seen by others. Uh, I think that itself is a powerful motivational force that can lead to both some of the best in humanity and some of the worst in humanity. So there's this amazing book by a psychologist named Roy Baumeister, uh, who, if you've heard about the like willpower is a muscle thing, yeah. he he popularized that. Um, but before if you he, go to the gym, it really is a muscle. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's some worries about the replicability of some of his studies, but before he did that, he wrote this um, this book called uh, Evil Inside uh, Human Violence and Cruelty, and he set out to try and figure out what was motivating people who did the most terrible, evil, horrific, violent acts. And he was trying to pull apart our pop culture image of evil, which we have a lot of, yeah. from the, the actual psychology of people who actually do this kind of stuff, you know, murder and uh, genocide and et cetera. And one of the biggest contrasts that he draws is that in the movies, uh, people who are evil often think of themselves as evil. Dr. Evil. Yeah. Uh, they embrace their evil. Uh, well, what he found is that in real life, people who do evil actions think of themselves as doing the right thing while they're doing it. Even while you're committing rapes and murders? Yeah. So, and so the process of trying to understand their psychology is trying to understand the justifications that they're telling themselves in order to make sense of their actions. So one of the things that um, plays a big role is groupthink, is feelings of loyalty to your group. You talked about tribalism. That can be a powerful force for good. People being loyal to their community and their neighborhood and their church. And that can their motivate ideas. Yeah, yeah. Altruism, cooking you know, lasagna for your neighbor who, uh, whose husband is sick. Uh, that, that comes from that motive of wanting to live up to and be good to your group. But when your group starts defining itself in opposition to some enemy, someone who's seen as evil, then all of a sudden your loyalty to your group might demand of you uh, more terrible things. And so in the process, then also people start to uh, describe their actions in a way that uh, makes their evilness less salient and their goodness more salient. And so they will um, dehumanize their victims. They'll think of them as actually often, um, sometimes they'll dehumanizing them by thinking of them as like less than human, like racist stereotypes of some, some people as like animal-like, et cetera. But often another thing that motivates um, violent action is depiction of the other group as itself evil. And so in response to, if you if that's the enemy and you're protecting the good people, then maybe violence towards them is justified. Just as in every action movie we all watch and enjoy where the main character kills lots of people, we're fine with it because they're bad guys. Sure, I, I see, you know, like one of the prime examples that comes to me when you say that is of course, on some level, I can see Trump justifying what he's doing. Sure. Yeah. On another, then another example that that swiftly came to mind when you said that was, I'm sure you heard of it, the uh, 
unfortunate 2012 gang rape that happened in Delhi. Mm, um, yeah, I think that went completely, uh, you know, it, it, it labeled Delhi as the rape capital of the world. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, one of the perpetrators said was that the that the girl who was uh, raped, she was wearing, you know, quote unquote, Western clothes and she yeah. was with a guy and nine, 9 p.m. and they were, you know, hanging around. So his justification, a documentary was made on this. And in the documentary, he said, the reason that we did this was because in our culture, women don't wear these clothes. They don't go out at night. Yeah. And they, they he don't. He was enforcing morality. Exactly. So yeah. sure, sh sure, people will hate me for probably saying this, but sure, if that was his justification, I can understand where he was coming from. That's not saying what he did was That's not right. to endorse it. Not and this is something Baumeister is very careful about in his book. He says, when you're studying evil, you have to try to set aside your moral judgment for a second just to try to understand what's going on in their head. Yeah. Exactly. And that doesn't mean in any way endorsing what's going on or in apologizing their head. Or, or apologizing. But at the same yeah. time, Brendan, my question then is, I feel like the loophole in this argument would be, for example, uh, I'm bringing so many India examples right now, um, <laughs> but... A few years ago, in broad daylight, one of the busiest bridges in, in the capital, Delhi, uh, a stalker, um, unrequited stalker, love yeah. stalker, he point blank shot a girl yeah. dead in the middle of a bridge and nobody came to help her. Nobody wow. came to yeah. help her. You know, so what does that say? This, I mean, what does that say about being humans? Like you're, what is the justification going on in your head? Yeah. Because the law actually protects good Samaritans. Yeah. In, in, in situations like this. Yeah. In, in, in India, there is a good Samaritan law that, that will help you. Um, so I don't see any justification there or, you, you know, the last time we spoke about how there's a whole issue of morality around climate change. Now, yeah. what is the justification for getting a disposable cup? You know, what is the justification for not responding to someone's uh, message? You know, one of the things that we spoke about was how how undemocratic love can be. And then that's yeah. a whole scope of morality in itself. Yeah. Um, sure. We can have justifications there. But there are many aspects of life where I wonder whether there is a justification and we can make things up and we can put meaning into things where none exist. Oh, absolutely. But but there are some things that that don't that don't allow for justification. Yeah, no, uh, and like, I, please, uh, I want to just be ex very clear that I am not saying that any yeah. of these actions that I'm talking about are justified. Um, I'm, I'm saying that often people have constructed, uh, maybe often after the fact and uh, flimsy uh, justifications to themselves, uh, but, I think you're also right that, so I was emphasizing, I think there's one case where basically you can see morality gone astray, uh, moral motivation pushing people to do positively bad things, where it's because they positively think it's the- Positively bad. Yeah, How it, paradoxical. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah, like, well, as opposed to like omitting something good, like um, failing to do your part to uh, combat climate change or even failing to help someone. There's a sense in which like do, doing something actively harmful needs a different kind of motivational explanation from refraining from doing something um, that would be good. Uh, 
and not interesting nuance there. Yeah. Well, so I think that uh, in the in the case of in some ways the case of um, refraining from helping the bystander uh, um, or being a bystander and helping the person who was just shot. Uh, this, this is often called the diffusion of responsibility effect, mm. where like you know lots of there are lots of passers by and none of them intervenes, even though you know clearly somebody needs to help. Uh, those types of or not doing your job in climate helping against climate change or world poverty or any of those things. Those are in some ways easier to explain because then you can just say, look, people are to some extent selfish and lazy. Uh, and when there's a path of least resistance, they'll often take it. Mm. Uh, and so I think that is um, in some ways less of a theoretical puzzle for thinking about moral motivation than like pure acts of violence or evil or genocide, where it's like, how could a fundamentally moral creature come to do these actively, you know, anti-moral things? Definitely. Um, as opposed to like, you could think, you know, we have moral motivation by nature, but also we have just like motivation to like, not, you know, uh, bother to bring a non-disposable cup to the coffee shop. We're also just lazy or we're also just selfish to some extent. And, you know, the, just the fact is that we, uh, any theory that has that we have some moral motivation in us is going to, any plausible theory is going to say, that's not the only motive that we have in us, uh, that there's other stuff that we want and it's competing. Um, and so, you know, I don't uh, do enough to combat climate change, maybe for the same reason I don't go to the gym often enough. <laughs> uh, because it's something that like would be good but that is often competing with my more short-term uh, and um, automatic and powerful motives of like staying on the couch. But then, the, but then here comes the notion of utilitarianism yeah. because going to the gym is only affecting you. Yeah. Whereas, um, loving where this conversation goes. Whereas yeah. climate change is affecting everybody. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I like how. Um, I like that you use the phrase moral motivation. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Um, how do we stir or create moral motivation? Yeah. So, um, you know, like a couple of, till a couple of years ago, um, feminism wasn't as big in pop culture as it is now. Yeah. Um, you know, or LGBTQ rights. Um, just talking about these things, uh, things and creating awareness has created a whole different um, scope of morality. Yeah. Similarly, how 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 does the how do we create these concepts of morality and how do they evolve in in society? I'm I'm not sure if if this is your scope of expertise, but I'm but I'm curious to know how we can stir moral motivation to to convince people that you know don't. People are people who are listening to this podcast are going to get irritated with how much we talk about climate change, but, <laughs> but it is an existential threat, and we will continue to talk about. It. Well, and it's also, I think, really illustrative here of something where um, people's explicit knowledge of what is needed and their day-to-day -day motivations come apart. Where where I can know that it's you know even among those of us who are aware 
of the existential threat and aren't, you know, uh, fed the kind of misinformation that would lead us to just stick our heads in the sand. Still, we can have trouble mustering the motivation to do something about it. Because it's not personally affecting us. Yeah, it's, it's this far away thing. It's a collective action problem rather than just an individual action problem. And so it's, it's I think, a kind of paradigm case of a modern moral problem where it's about the effects that our actions have not right in front of us. Uh, and so it's harder to muster the motivation to do it, I think. Um, so it's not just that you're harping on it, uh, <laughs> is what I wanted to say. Um, I think in response to, I'm gonna take like one part of your question, uh, how do you create moral motivation where it wasn't there before? And, um, you know, like, you know, somebody might have thought of uh, being feminist as just like uh, like a um, what's the word like a, a fringe culture movement thirty years ago, and now it feels like a moral thing. It feels like this is a moral commitment that yeah. we've we've made, and you are uh, not just not hip; you are in the wrong if you haven't caught up with it. Um, how do we make that shift? Yeah. I think that um, leave it to the academic to frame questions properly. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's that's all I do for a living is frame the questions, uh, you know. Um, so a lot here, like there's the, you're right that there is a lot here that's out of my expertise about like what the effective messaging is, et cetera. But I have thought some about the underlying psychology that I think might inform that messaging. So here I want to just contrast two strategies, one of which I think is going to be better than the other. So one thing people often think of when they think of moral motivation, and this is the strategy that I ultimately think isn't going to work. People often think of sympathy, empathy, compassion for the other person, which you know is of course an admirable and wonderful thing. But I think it turns out also that it's not that powerful. It doesn't stick that long. So you know if you've ever gotten a uh, um, a leaflet in the mail trying to get you to give to um, like Oxfam, you know, with the the picture of the the um, really cute but obviously malnourished kid. Yeah. Um, and it's trying to pull your heartstrings to to make you want to give. That can kind of motivate you for a minute. Yeah. Um, but it's very easy, and we're very adept at pushing those emotions away if they're not useful in the moment. You know. Yeah. Uh, we can distract ourselves. It's inconvenient to think about that. And so I think just focusing on, say, the suffering of trans teens um, or the, uh, the suffering of people who are already suffering the consequences of climate change these days, trying to pull our heartstrings to motivate us to act, I think the, the evidence indicates that uh, though of course, that's a reason to act. It's it as far as psychology goes, it doesn't get a long-lasting grip on us. It's fairly easy for us if we don't want to to yeah. leave it aside. Um, you know, out of just, sight, out of yeah, mind. out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Um, and so, I think a more effective form of moral turning something into moral motivation is campaigning to change our norms of social approval and disapproval of what's what's socially acceptable and what's not so it 
it's almost a uh, like kind of cynical view of human nature where it's that I'm less motivated by the thought of the suffering of the poor child who needs my help than by the thought that my friends might look down on me if I don't donate enough to charity. But I think that fits with the uh, evolutionary origins of our morality, where the starting point is small groups um, trying to hold each other to shared cooperative norms. And hold each other accountable. Hold each other accountable to shared cooperative norms. And so I think we need that form of accountability to really get the moral engine turned on. What, what, would this be another uh, way of naming and shaming? Yeah. Calling out bad behavior? Absolutely. I think that's the more effective thing. Rather than uh, um, appealing to uh, our sympathy for the victims, it's instead appealing to basically our fear of naming and shaming, of, of the judgment of others. So then uh, this, this is probably going to go back into uh, a part of the conversation that we've already touched upon. Does naming and shaming mean that people will get away with bad behavior as far as they can till they're called out for it? Uh, unfortunately, I think, <laughs> you know, well, so yes and no. In that, uh, so it, people, here's, here's a way of putting it, is uh, that's, I think, somewhat more sympathetic is is that um, people there's there's a kind of inertia in people uh, they are usually just going to want to stick to the moral norms that they were taught as children and uh, the kind of social conventions that they were taught as children and when uh, you know a moral norm is inculcated in you uh, very strongly as a child people will have strong moral motivation to stick with it so, you know, um, loyalty to friends or to your family, uh, you know, the people who have maybe a, a tough time understanding why they should care about immigrants at the border may well be um, extremely loyal and dedicated to their family and moral persons in that respect of their life, because that's the morality they were brought up with. And yeah. so I think there's a, there's a type of stickiness and resistance to change that happens. And also people just are like, in terms of, you know, uh, laziness and not intervening to, to save someone who needs it on the street or not intervening, changing your behavior to affect climate change. The other thing is that like people just get wrapped up in whatever is taking their concern in life. Definitely. And so, you know, the human mind is limited in its amount of attention and bandwidth. And so something has to really, um, you know, seem important in order to really get a grip enough to change behavior. We're short term uh, thinking individuals. Yeah. Yeah. We have blinders on. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that my point about the gym was like, that's not unique to morality. Um, there's, you know, stuff that's purely self-interested, but that's still, uh, you know, is hard to get motivated to do because it's hard to get it to take up enough of the bandwidth um, of your attention because so many other things are fighting for your attention. And so I think that naming and shaming something is a way of making it win the fight for attention because one thing we as deeply, deeply social animals are trained to pay attention to is if other people are disapproving of us. 
Um, that that is like one of our like primal fears is social ostracism. And so I think that has a motivational grip. However, I don't think this should lead to thinking that the only thing that motivates people or the only, uh, um, what's the word? The only source of progress in morality is because they were kind of beaten into doing it by the shaming. Because it will have consequences. I mean, there was a study done just, I think Huff Huffington Post ran it last year, end of last year, after the Me Too movement took off, um, the, the, that particular article said that women were being called less to the boardrooms because men were afraid that anything that they do will lead to, you know, ostracization yeah. of their behavior. Yeah, and there, there's definitely a, there's a reactionary impulse. Uh, I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in the, um, the extreme right these yeah. days is that as social norms are evolving to um, make certain kinds of, uh, as we're basically, like lots of society is uh, becoming woke, uh, the rest of society or some other parts of society are, are uh, um, overcompensating. They're reacting against the, the feeling of being judged. Um, and so, yeah, there's a huge question about what the appropriate way, both appropriate and effective way to name and shame is. Uh, and one can definitely a, go overboard with it. Uh, John Oliver did this great piece on public shaming and on the internet and how it can get way out of hand. Yeah. Um, and also uh, to, for, to have it uh, like snap back, uh, what's the word, backlash. Yeah. Um, and so like, I'm not proposing this as a, a, um, a silver so, bullet or yeah. anything like that. But the other thing I just wanted to say was that, you know, you're saying people will go on doing the immoral thing until somebody calls them out and shames them. Yeah, I think we should should also remember that before any norm starts getting named and shamed, there are the moral entrepreneurs, you might call them, the innovators who saw that society as it was wasn't right. So you have the you know uh, the slavery abolitionist in 1790. Uh, you know you have the women's rights activist who's a man in 1900. Yeah. You have the, you know, advocate for gay and trans rights in 1980. Uh, those people, I think, also should give us some hope that you can not just follow the moral tide, but lead it. And that we can, by thinking carefully, and I would say doing moral philosophy to some extent, not necessarily in an academic context, but thinking carefully about our moral beliefs and justification. Or listening to this podcast. <laughs> or, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, we can, we don't just have to follow the, uh, the norms of shame that happen to be prevalent in our culture at these points. I think it's more about how you take the kind of intellectual discovery of new aspects of morality by these innovators and how you <laughs> bring it to scale, how you get a whole society to come along with it, given how yeah. slow moving and stubborn human society and psychology is, if I we think take, then shame plays a role. Yeah, because if we take as much time as we have taken to come thus far, let's say for women and you know, gay and LGBTQ rights and- And I racial mean, rights. And racial rights, we just, I mean, 
I go, I keep going back to the planet. I mean, we just don't have that much time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just don't have that much time. Jury's out whether we're all going to melt to death before exactly. we figure it out. Before the sun explodes, we are going to melt. <laughs> um, I mean, you're right. I think we do have reason to be hopeful because we have made so much progress. Um, and of course, more is going to happen. So it would be wrong and cynical and half glass empty for me to say that oh, human beings are doomed and human beings are evil. But, you know, I can't help but wonder whether no matter how far we progress, there will always be crime and there will always be violence and murders yeah. and progress is never linear. So, you know, it's we don't have the luxury and the privilege to chill out after we've come so far because oh, we can always roll back. And, and because we can always roll back, I wonder if, if that, you know, the evilness is latent in us. And I think it goes back to what you were saying that we do, what drives goodness and badness and evilness, they both come from the same place. It just depends on which pot you want to flower, I suppose. Yeah. And I guess, I guess I'd want to say that, yes, uh, the, or, I definitely don't want to be advocating, in advocating some kind of optimism about the possibility of moral progress. Uh, I don't want to be advocating resting on our laurels, uh, saying, oh yeah, we, well, you know, the arc of justice, uh, no, the arc of history is long, but it tends towards justice. Uh, so, okay, so it's gonna do that by default. Yeah. Um, you know, we just need to wait. Uh, I don't think so. I think if anything, um, it should give us more reason to keep on fighting. And I think there's an equally dangerous uh, um, source of apathy, um, which is fatalism, which is the thought that, you know, we're screwed no matter what. Yeah. And so why bother fighting anymore? Um, or, you know, these, these people, uh, the, the Trump voters are so beyond, uh, um, you know, our reach that they must just be evil. They must be unreachable. There must be no way of persuading them that uh, the suffering of migrant children matters. I think we should resist that too. I think that the reasons for optimism are reasons to think like, we don't get the easy excuse of we're screwed so we don't have to keep on fighting. Uh, no, uh, we are neither screwed nor have we won. Instead, we're in the middle of the battle. Yeah. Uh, and it's not lost yet. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, if we want to tell ourselves that we can give up just because some people are evil necessarily and never will, don't have any part of their soul that will uh, allow them to change, I think that's also mistaken. Um, I think that the we're all built from the same psychological materials. Yeah. Uh, and we're also built from the same things that the universe was built. Yeah, from. yeah, and the same protons and <laughs> neutrons, et cetera. We're all one. Yeah. Let's speak it. <laughs> um, but and so you know, I think that um, the the sources of evil or the sources of wrongdoing and injustice uh, and uh, um, you know people not doing what's right uh, come from the same things that we find in ourselves that keep us from doing, living up to our best image of ourselves all the time. And so I think they're understandable human drives in the end. That doesn't make them excusable. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we uh, 
you know, um, should give up on trying to change them, but it also means that um, I think just saying that some people are beyond the pale uh, is usually uh, the wrong way of going. One last thing I want to ask you, just to completely uh, make the conversation that we've had so far funnel it completely yeah. and ask you on a personal level, what motivates you to be good? You know, um, it's funny. Uh, you can feel when you s study ethics for a living, um, you worry, uh, I tend to worry that people, you know, expect me to be a particularly virtuous person. Um, but when it comes, but are you? No, uh, because apparently your wife is a possession. I no, have to. I have no. to bring that one in. You, you twisted my words. All I said is that she was my wife. Uh, you said I have a wife. <laughs> she has me. Um, well, no. So, but like you know, on this stuff, I I, I struggle. I don't do as much as I could to, um, you know, I don't donate as much to charity as I ought to. I don't. Uh, I'm not as environmental as I ought to. I try to eat less meat, but I haven't gone totally vegan. Um, all of these things. Uh, and so, you know, I think part of what draws me to study moral motivation uh, and its limits is experiencing those limits in myself. Uh, and, you know, what I've been saying about like, uh, you know, morality, um, moral motivation being about the people around you, being pulled by, um, you know, the the gaze of the person uh, next to you, I experience in my own life. I, I am the kind of person who will drop anything for my family or for a friend, but who has a hard time dropping everything for a, you know, catastrophe that is going to happen to the world 50 years from now, uh, or for, um, you know, suffering in countries that are far away that I know is just as real as my suffering, but is hard to keep as psychologically salient. And so I'm by no means uh, a saint on any of these measures. And I think that uh, under trying to figure out why uh, has been one thing that one source of curiosity for me is, um, huh, you know, I now appreciate, I now understand the philosophical reasons why I should, you know, be, I read Peter Singer and I know why I should be giving far more to charity than I in fact am. And that like spending money on personal luxuries is this, uh, you know, uh, is hard to justify in the face of uh, global suffering. And yet that knowing that moral argument doesn't immediately change how I behave. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a long struggle to get from accepting a moral belief in the in theory in the classroom and internalizing it in life. I think that's part of what got me interested in the psychology of morality rather than just the content of morality is feeling that gap between theory and practice myself. Excellent. Um, we never promised to answer any questions in this podcast. And I think <laughs> well, we're... we did answer all of them just last time. So nobody <laughs> will hear. Exactly. They are in a black hole now, uh -huh. uh, making their way through uh, to another universe. Uh -huh. um, thank you so much, Brendan, for coming on. Thank it you, is Shreya. hard being human 
Uh, but we try our best and perfection is probably a goal that we can never reach. So let's just try and be good and use less plastic straws. You guys. <laughs> that, is the, that is the verdict. <laughs> uh, seven episode of the Nth Dimension. I now have a Twitter channel. Please follow me on underscore Nth Dimension. Have a listen. Let me know what you think. Drop some ideas. Drop some comments other than my father who will say hi, Shreya, on my Twitter timeline. (laughs) Be good. Have a great day. Between prepping ingredients, setting the table, and planning your tomorrow, sometimes you need an extra hand with dinner. Delta Faucet is here to help. Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot with Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology and fill it with the perfect amount of water. Done. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voiceiq to see how voiceiq can fill your dog's bowl, wash your hands, and more.